Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. Morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to their episode of Sheologians. I'm Summer, and I'm here with my beautiful co-host Joy. Hey, Joy. Hi. <laughs> and today's episode is different. We've had guests before, um, but we've never had this guy. So, Nate Collins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, we had Nate on because he is the founder of the Revoice Conference, which is something that is generating just a lot of interest and discussion right now. And we were hoping we could just talk to him, talk about some of the things we affirm, talk about some things that are important to him and ask some questions. So first, Nate, um, why don't you just tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So um, again, my name's Nate Collins. Uh, I'm 38 years old. I've been married to my wife, Sarah, for 14 years. We have three wonderful sons. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I also identify as gay. Uh, and that's one of the biggest reasons that I'm interested in the work of what we're doing with Revoice. Um, I have been out in a sense of just being transparent about my orientation for the past 12 years. Uh, I was a, a Master of Divinity student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I finished that degree in 2009. And then a year later, began a, a PhD in New Testament, and I recently graduated uh, from that program last year. Congratulations. It, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote a book in the middle of my dissertation, so I, people asked me what I was going to do afterwards, and I said, rest. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, wow, a book and a dissertation. No big deal. I mean, I guess maybe if you're already writing one mm-hmm. dissertation, which is kind of a book, then yeah. you're... Uh, you know, may as well do too. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a story about why it just happened that way. But yeah, it was it was an experience. And I'm I'm an ENFP on the Myers Briggs. We just don't finish things. We start lots of things. So <laughs> yeah, that might be why I started a book in the middle of my dissertation. Right. So, right. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. We have a yeah. funny ongoing thing with uh, personality types. And you said you're an ENFP. That's right. ENFJ. I'm an ENFJ. I don't know oh, what that boy. means, but no, we don't. I, mean, I kind of do, but I do know the letters. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I cut you but, off. Oh, no, I was just going to go on about my book and my dissertation and why I'm excited about Revoice. But yeah, do that. Tell us, tell us about your book first. Okay. So, um, my interest in, in New Testament, um, was on gender and sexuality, and I wrote about the social identity of virgins in the Greco-Roman background literature and Jewish background literature of the New Testament and in First Corinthians 7, and interacted a lot with, um, in a couple of chapters on sem- with feminism and different, some different strains of feminism and contemporary gender theory, because I felt like it's important for there to be evangelical work on that subject that wasn't uh, primarily critical, but was, uh, in terms of critiquing, but in terms of uh, how can we wrestle with the ideas and questions that these uh, scholars are raising about something that's very basic to human experience, you know, gender. Right. 
and I, I really felt like there was not much critical engagement at the uh, by evangelicals about or with feminist theory. There's a couple books in the 90s, and um, so obviously my interest was because of the way orientation today is a gendered idea of orientation specify what kind of man or woman someone is. And so that was what I ended up writing the book on. Uh, the book was it's called All But Invisible, uh, Exploring Identity Questions at the Intersection of Faith, Gender, and Sexuality. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of that book was is to push the conversation, the evangelical conversation about LGBT issues forward um, by not being distracted on questions that have already been decided and that there's a consensus on, namely that homosexual behavior is sinful. The Bible clearly teaches, I believe, that um, sex only belongs in heterosexual marriage. Right. And so um, that question has been answered ad nauseum over and over and over. And meanwhile, there's lots of other questions that are being neglected. And right. those answers to those questions are really important for people like me who aren't straight, who are trying to figure out what our faith means for us if we uh, are not straight, but we're also Bible-believing Christians. Right. And so that's what the book does. It tries to push those little pieces I tried to pull lots of threads on different conversations um, that I I thought needed to happen. And so it came out last September, and uh, yeah, so it's been fun. That's awesome. And are you you teaching now? No, no, I'm not. I I was an instructor for a year. I taught Greek at Southern Seminary. Oh, very Um, cool. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. Probably the the best part of my experience at Southern. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So, and you are the, tell me I read this right, you are the founder of the Revoice Conference, correct? Sure, sure, the president and founder. Awesome. And is this, this is the first time that it's happening? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. It's the very first time. So tell us, tell us about that. Why did, why did you found the Revoice Conference? Well, so it, it, it's related to, to the ideas in the book, uh, namely that a lot of non-straight people in conservative churches that uphold historic Christian teaching on marriage and sexuality uh, feel invisible. Uh, they, they don't feel like they're understood. Uh, they don't understand themselves in large part because their tradition hasn't given them adequate categories to understand how to reconcile faith and sexuality and, uh, and orientation. What is orientation? And so um, as basically a lot of things sort of conspired at once um, uh, towards the end of last summer. And probably the thing that really uh, kicked it off in my mind was when the national statement came out. Okay. And a a lot of us felt like the national statement unfairly excluded um, people like me, people like Wesley Hill, um, people who would loosely be related to the, the gay Christian movement. Although I will point out that I don't use the phrase gay Christian a single time in my book. Okay. Um, so a lot of people get hung up on that phrase. It's not an important phrase to me. Okay. Um, so yeah, I just, I felt like there was a, some, some excluding going on and some, uh, foreclosing conversations, um, by this, by that event. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I wasn't interested in excluding people who signed that statement. I feel like it would be great if all of us could get together and, uh, and, uh, experience what unity in Christ means. And so, the idea for Revoice came in the aftermath of that. I thought, you know what? I, I, there needs to be some community, some community that will welcome anybody who does not identify as straight, 
who has some um, some complexity around the, the way they think about their gender and sexuality. And let's learn from each other. Let's have a, a place where we can gather and and enjoy each other's company and, and find a new community, in a sense. It's, it's, part of, it's on our website. Um, because something like this has not existed in the past. You know, the, the, the main narrative that has merged out of Christianity, uh, at least evangelical Christianity, around this issue was the ex-gay narrative. And that you know, lasted for about 37 years, 35, 37 years with uh, Exodus International. Um, the idea that you could change and become straight. Um, it's somewhat simple, oversimplifying it. But right. uh, there, there is no uh, narrative within conservative evangelical Christianity that tries to take a different tack, tries to ask different questions, tries to think theologically about experience of orientation. Right. Now that impacts what we think of our gender. And so um, the idea of, of being able to, to do what I could to see if I could make a community like that happen um, became very just intriguing. And honestly, this is a grassroots thing. Um, I know that's popular to say these days, but we have, <laughs> We have no uh, official sponsors, no no monetary sponsorship or fiscal sponsorship of any kind. Um, uh, it's I work part time at Starbucks. <laughs> I know that's cliche, but hey, I worked uh, at Starbucks. <laughs> oh, you're a partner. <laughs> I I wa- yeah, I was for ten years. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's that's sort of the background for Revoice and. Uh, through networking, you know, like I said, I've been out for 10, uh, 12 years now, and I've had the opportunity to meet lots of really amazing people around the country who are doing incredible ministry in this area. Yeah, and who have a, a like mind, um, deep theological, deep theological conviction, but also uh, just a desire to reach across lines of misunderstanding and and make community happen yeah and so that's that that's that's the pool we've gone from for our workshops um for the speakers we have uh three main speakers including myself we have over 25 workshops on a wide variety of topics um that are relevant to this issue the conference is geared primarily towards actual non-straight christians and so that's reflected in our workshop offering about 70 percent of workshops are, are geared toward that audience but right. we also know that that people who love those people want to come to the conference and learn and show their support. And so we have some workshops um, for pastors, for parents, for uh, people in the mental health field, um, things like that. So you said something really interesting that I want to circle back on. Um, You said in in your book and just in your own terminology that you don't, you said you don't use the phrase gay Christianity. Um, And so I guess my question would be, uh, well, number one, why don't you use the phrase? And um, can a can a Christian, if you're saying I don't use this phrase, but you did say earlier I am gay. So what is your, what is the distinction? It sounds like you're making a distinction. Am I right? You're exactly right. What is that um, distinction? So the distinction is what what is a gay identity? And in my book, I I, I have an entire section or entire chapter on social identity. And I basically argue that, or suggest that, that the modern gay identity is a social identity in the sense that it ends, the word gay is a label that indexes one's membership in a particular group of people. And okay. so since orientation is a thing, which that's debate, people debate that, uh, but I think, I think it's uh, a fairly stable enough 
experience for most people, but also just a category. Um, so I think that since orientation is a thing, uh, and especially in our culture today, it hasn't always been, but in our culture today, uh, people are treated and have been in the past historically treated a certain way because of perceived orientation. Um, there's a long history of, uh, I mean, that's where the word homophobia comes from, right? And, and I, I'm not going to go into a uh, long historical argument about <laughs> experience of gay people in, in modern culture. Um, but I do think there's an element of, of uh, stereotypes and mistreatment and, I mean, gay jokes all over the place. It's not as common anymore, but I heard them at Southern Seminary. Mm. Um, so, like, those are all a thing because perceived orientation is a thing. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the case, then I am required as a biblical scholar to think theologically about, well, what is orientation? What is what does it mean to have an orientation and to be in a group of people accordingly? And so that for me is why I would prefer to say I'm a gay man more than I'm a gay Christian. Gay for one, gay Christian just sets off all kinds of alarm bells, and gay man does too. But I, I mean something more specific by it. What kind of man am I? I'm a certain kind of man, a man who is not straight and has a gay orientation. Okay. okay. I'd like um I think I'm following. <laughs> I think um I'd I my question is could you please um sort of uh like use in your own words orientation and identity in the same mm-hmm. sentence and kind of explain the the you know the relationship that those two words have. Mm. Mhm. So, so orientation is a, a category, and one has a social identity that reflects the category that they belong to. Mm-hmm. And so that's the sense I'm using the word gay, because orientation, I, I have a gay orientation. Now, I haven't even gotten into what I think about orientation, um, and I, I have chapters in my book about that. Uh, I, I think that we're way too Freudian. Mm-hmm. That's a really common criticism that people in... Uh, uh, for example, spiritual friendship circles, Wesley Hill, and all of them. That's a very common criticism that they have uh, made towards people who critique them. And that criticism basically goes along the lines of that you're still taking your marching orders from Freud. You're still arguing that being gay is intrinsically about desiring gay sex. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that does justice to gay people or straight people. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then what there has to be something that's at the basis of orientation. And one of the things that I've tried to do is, is take my cues from Christian theology. What are what are important uh, priorities in Christian theology that inform who I am as a person made in God's image? Mm-hmm. And one of those one of those uh, experience, one of those things is the perception of beauty in other image bearers. And so I basically think of orientation as the perception and admiration of personal beauty in other people. And when there's a a pattern of that, well, that's what orientation is. Can so I it's ask? not intrinsically sexual. It's a, it's a general, generic perception of personal beauty, and it's not obviously just external beauty. It's the entire beauty of the, the personhood, their entire personhood, their soul, who they are as a person. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, I do want to ask quickly, um, okay, so how does orientation rely on identity or vice versa? Like, how do those two things communicate with one another 
I think I just go back to what I said about orientation being a category. Like when there's a meaningful category in a culture, like I use the example in Kentucky where I've spent, you know, the past 14 years, it means something to be a Louisville Cardinals fan versus a Kentucky Wildcats fan. Okay. That's a, that, those are categories that, that identify people. It's a part of our... Become, sorry, it's, sorry? A, it's a part of our identity just as humans. We all have these That's sort right. of things, that it's, these little plugins that make us the type of human that we are here the on The type this of human that we are and the type of human that others experience us to be. And so I, I call them first creation identities. Because I, I do want to leave room for, obviously, I want to leave room for the, the ultimate reality, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And we don't know what that is going to look like. But we do, in the meantime, have these first creation identities that, that inform who we are and who others experience us to be. And we're treated accordingly in ethical ways, mm-hmm. in ways that have ethical meaning. And so because of that, I feel like we need to have a way to talk about that. Okay, so you're bringing up something for me that I'm having a hard time, that I am wrestling with as I think through these issues. Mm-hmm. So we're really deep right now. Is this normal? like yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. this is where we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. I guess with a name like theologians, <laughs> I'm, we're, we're I'm playing, playing, playing along. I we ha- even held back on our silliness a yeah, little bit. Yeah, we did. We're normally <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, I and I'm not. I, this question is philosophical and it's a philosophical question I've been thinking through and I think mm-hmm. you've, you've already touched on it a little bit. Um, this is what I'm wrestling with. So given uh, Genesis 127, which you know, um, mm-hmm. God made man in his own image, male and female, we're not denying that. Um, but given that we are told that homosexual desires are unnatural, uh, like un- mm-hmm. they're an unnatural to the created order. How can homosexuality be an ontological possibility? Well, so so right there, you're using categories that are more comfortable in a Freudian um, anthropology than in a I would, I would say a Christian anthropology because of the presence of the word sex and sexual, the root sex. So I would not, I don't like the word homosexual, besides the fact that it sounds way too cynical and, mm. and all that. I just don't, I don't know, I don't accept it. I don't think it is a biblical category. There is no Bible, there's no Hebrew word that means homosexual. There's no Greek word that means homosexual. All the references, so you mentioned unnatural desires in, from Romans 1. Yes. Uh, those are quite clearly uh, mental actions that are culpable, meaning they're active lust. Mm-hmm. So the Bible explicitly addresses homosexual behavior, including mental behaviors. Yes. It never once addresses something called about orientation. And so it, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have anything relevant to say about what orientation, how we should understand orientation as Christians. Right. It just means that we can't map any of these texts directly onto that question. Right. Well, so in terms of... Um... I'm sort of developing this question as I go. <laughs> right. It, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of um, 1 Corinthians 6, mm-hmm. obviously well-known in well, relation to this topic. Obviously, yes. Um, yep. So, I mean, I, I would... Huh. Okay. <laughs> um, so I want to... Well, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say that those the two words 
I think it's quite easy to see them as active and passive participants in right. sex. And so, right. they're, so again, they're, they're behaviors. So they're, they're labels that we're indexing identities based on behaviors. Right. Correct. So it doesn't literally man betters. Right, right. Right. Yes. Well, and so the thing is, is that I, I am willing to say that they may have not those texts do not explicitly mention an orientation. Sure. But I, I mm-hmm. based off of what I know about human sexuality <laughs> as a human myself, I would say <laughs> that many people that this was addressing in this text probably did have desires mm. and feelings for one another. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a problem that, um, sure. that it doesn't, you know, clearly delineate whether or not they were just committing behaviors or whether or not they had feelings for one another. Hmm. Um, and so I think it's very possible that people who were engaged in homosexual acts did love each other mm-hmm. um, and they had a desire for one another and they had a desire for as just aesthetically speaking even. Um, and even that they had exclusive desires for oh, yeah. same sex. Yes, yeah. I would absolutely. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I, the problem is, is that within so it, I don't think the exclusion, the exclusion doesn't offer a problem when it says such were some of you. Um, mm. It meant, it says practice homosexuality, but I think it's very safe to say that people had feelings for one another. They had a mm. singular attraction, mm. but it still says such were some of you. Hmm. So are you trying to say that? So what you're saying that they may have stopped the behaviors, and that's why Paul could say such were some of you, but they. No, I'm saying that it would that would have been just as much of a call to someone who was singularly attracted to males. Hmm. I see what you're saying. So you're saying basically, it sounds like maybe you can't you can't divorce a desire from an action. Is that true or false? Well, that's. Like There's, desire leads to action. Not necessarily. Oh. I, we, people have all kinds of desires that, that have layers and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, we have so desires that we I, don't I'm act just understand on. what you're trying to, what you're trying to, to say about First uh, Corinthians 6, 9, because it, the, what I'm wondering is if an implication of what you're saying is that the only people that, uh, Paul was referring to when he said such were some of you is people who suddenly did not become like became straight. No, that's not what I'm, I don't think that that's the answer to, to it at all. I'm just saying that, um, couldn't it, so whether or not you're practicing or not practicing, but still have the desire, having gay sex, isn't that included in, practice homosexual homosexuality okay, how about we uh well let's transfer it to a different one because i think we're hung up on the desire issue right. so <laughs> so we're the desire for gay sex right. i would say needs to cease and like any desire that is a temptation i don't think that anybody's ever guaranteed that the temptations that they'll ever cease struggling with a particular temptation so paul can't be meaning that you'll see struggling with sexual desire. No, that's not I what say, I'm just trying to make a distinction between like yeah, the actual practice gay, of it and the desire of it. I'm not saying that I believe it's okay for me to experience same-sex sexual desire and that I can form an identity around that. Hmm. Okay. But what are I, then I'm what are you I'm forming the identity saying, around? 
I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, so, okay, that's, that's, okay, I think that clears up that question, but then, so you're saying that those desires, you're, I mean, you're agreeing with Paul that those desires, that these are the desires you used to have, now you're a new creation. So these sexual desires for people of the same gender right. are desires that stem that 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 are a result of the flesh living in a fallen world. They're not morally neutral. We we agree on that. Yeah, that's right. I would agree that sexual desires for for members of the same sex are not, not morally neutral. Are they sinful? They're sinful in the sense that they stem from our fallen existence. I okay. don't believe that the experience of temptation for that, if it's withstand, if it's if it's uh, withstood and uh, mortified, like any temptation would be, uh, I don't think that that is morally culpable in the sense that if, if I'm trusting in Christ for my salvation, Christ Christ paid for my sins. He right. also gave me a new heart yes. and the ability to follow Christ, to follow the Spirit's leading and to, to experience conviction from the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, and these are all things that that the purpose of which is to give me assurance that I'm actually safe. I'm actually part of God's family. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not supposed to feel ashamed of those fallen aspects of my life that I still experience. It's just parts of my flesh that war against my spirit. Right. So then agreed, but I don't, um, but are we to adopt them as an identity? We shouldn't feel ashamed, but for the idolater or the adulterer or someone who's behaving sexual, like engaging in sexual immorality, um, we, like you said, we're not we're not supposed to carry that into our relationship with Christ once we're saved and regenerate. So why is the um, nor men who practice homosexuality different in that it transfers over to an identity? I think that's kind of the question I'm getting at. Yeah. So there's a couple. I, I can circle back to a couple points I made. Um, the first being that if we take sex out of the center of orientation and put perception and admiration of personal beauty, then that I believe is those are desires that I I believe can be sanctified. So when I, if I experience an attraction to another man, it is, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the idea of sex and sexual attraction or anything like that. It's just a a sense of being drawn to that person and the beauty of his personhood. Mm. And so I am, I'm faced with a choice at that point. Mm. And I would say that the same, it's the same choice that a, a man who's straight has with a woman that he feels himself attracted to. And it's the choice of what am I going to do? How am I going to steward this perception of beauty in a fellow image bearer? Mm. And I, I, in order for relate, any relationship, I think, to happen, you have to be able to, to have a positive answer for that besides kill it, fortify it. Like, no, we haven't even gotten to sex. We haven't gotten to standard temptation. We just, this is just a perception of beauty. And so for me, what that looks like is I ask myself, is this somebody that I could see myself being friends with? Is this somebody that I could see myself developing a, a, a relationship with? Or is this somebody that I'm just like never going to see again? You know, and in which case I just, I just forget about it. There's no use. Right. Huh. Um, and so, so again, the first, thing I would point to is if we're recentering orientation around something besides sex, then it's not immediately problematic uh, in terms of Christian ethics, I think. And the second thing is just to point back to the social identity aspect of, of orientation, and that's to, to suggest that, that there's a value in, in, in knowing um, who, who, what group you're in, 
in a sense, because groups have identities, groups have common histories, and groups have um, a collective story and a narrative, a meaning that helps them make sense of how they uh, experience life. And the history still needs to be written, I believe, of the evangelical, um, the intersection of evangelical uh, Christianity and mm. um, LGBT people. One of the, the work, one of the workshops that I'm most interested uh, in people hearing uh, at Revoice is going to be taught by Ron Delgao. He's co-founder of Spiritual Friendship, and he's going to talk. He's going to survey the past 40 years of Christian ministry and LGBT issues, and he's going to not sugarcoat any of the, um, just, I would say the trauma. Uh, I'd be willing to go so far as to, to label it as trauma uh, that gay people experience in conservative churches uh, because they are, they're judged. Uh, yeah. They don't, yeah. they don't feel like they belong. Right, right. And that's a history that needs to be told. And because that's a history, it's a, it's a social history, um, it, to the extent that it resonates with people, I, I have no problem with, with labeling that a social, with using the language of social identity to, to explain that. Right. Uh, it, it certainly resonates with me. Yeah. Um, the, so when, when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened two years ago, um, I, so I never, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were missionaries. My dad's been a pastor my entire life. Um, and God, praise God, God very graciously uh, uh, just prevented me from going down a lot of very negative and bad directions that I could have as a teenager. And plus, I'm 38, you know, so a lot of the stuff that's happening now wasn't even yeah. on most people's radar in conservative evangelical churches. You're um, not that so old. I didn't really have... <laughs> I'm sorry? You're not that old yet, just so you know. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I, anyway, we won't go there. Um, so, so when Pulse happened, I was shocked because, like, numb, basically. Because uh, these were people who, if I had made different choices, I, I would identify with very much. And yeah. then... So it happened on a, early on a, a Sunday morning. And then uh, during that, that season of our lives, we just had our, our youngest kid. And um, I wasn't sleeping well. Sarah wasn't sleeping. My wife wasn't sleeping well. So I ended up sleeping in my other kid's bedroom. And I would just spend hours on Facebook trying to connect with people who, who, through this experience of, of, of grief, like, horror, like horrible grief, mm-hmm. um, it just resonated so deeply with them. And I wanted to know why I was so numb and I just couldn't get enough of reading my LGBT friends, just sorrow and reactions. And then on, on Monday night, it, it, the dam broke and I just was weeping because of what these people, my people in a sense, not in the sense of like my ultimate capital P people, children, people of God, but in the sense of the people that I can relate to and I can resonate with because we have a common experience of life to an extent and so I it just I broke and I just yeah. all started bawling and I ran to our bedroom and sobbed in my wife's arms and and for me that that was a linchpin uh, to help me understand the impact of a common shared history because I've experienced trauma in the church I've experienced what it's like to be in a seminary classroom and have students telling gay jokes for 30 minutes mm-hmm. like I need to be able to name that I need to be able to name the social reality that that is and, and the identity that goes with that. So I I just want to affirm with you, because Joy and I, we've had this discussion before, and mm-hmm. um, we, 
my heart breaks for the group of people that you're talking about there um, as well, because I don't believe that the church has done a great job of being clear um, that, hey, uh, if you are same sex attracted, you are not a monster. You we don't yeah. we, we don't fear you. There's nothing in you to fear. You're welcome in our home. You are. A per you know what I mean? Like, I just don't think yeah. that I think that um, I think that a lot of the stigma that you mentioned is very real. Um, like I mentioned before, I worked at Starbucks for 10 years and <laughs> um, I grew up in a conservative Christian home. And so when I started working at Starbucks, um, you know, some of the most profound, meaningful friendships I had in my formative years when I started working um, at Starbucks in high school was with gay people. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, just <laughs> yesterday I got to talk to a transgender man who works at the salon mm. I go to. And um, it, it's just very clear that uh, getting to talk, you know, seeing seeing a man dressed as a woman is startling. It's not something that we see all of the time. And I think for the average person, we're not around that a lot. And so it can be mm -hmm. very like your immediate reaction is not always the most Christian reaction. And so, yeah. you know, yesterday I got to actually speak to this person and and I could just tell that he's the kind of guy that I would go hang out with and have a coffee with. And, yeah. you know, so I love that you guys have a heart for this. This thing that mm -hmm. you're bringing up now is just really new to me. And so I'm just like you're uh let me finish my thought because i think i'm grasping what you're saying but i want to make sure i, <laughs> I want to make sure i am um sure. this you're saying that this same-sex attraction um it doesn't need to be hypersexual and you're okay. not you're not saying you know and we live in a very sexual culture and a lot of parts of gay christianity i'm thinking the matthew vines the james brownsons like they are not divorcing the sexual act from gay Christianity, whereas you, yeah. you are. So this is, this is different. Okay. I got that. Yeah. Um, if I'm, here's my, here's my thought and my question. We're talking about how the, those who identify as gay have been felt secluded and left alone. And the church has not done a great job in that. Um, mm -hmm. My, the thing I'm not really grasping is that we don't, there's a lot of ways that you can love a person who's not in a relationship. The church does need to do a better job with that too. Hospitality is a whole other issue of an area uh -huh. that we've totally failed in. Um, yeah. But my question is two parts. If, if sex is the most intimate physical expression of an intimate union, and that can only be found in marriage, then what purpose would a sexual orientation that can't be fulfilled have and so, essentially i'm sorry go ahead well you just threw in the word sexual before orientation and i would just like again i i i, I think the orientation is aesthetic so i use the word as i know i, I know it's these are all new ideas and i, I don't claim to 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 be I, I by no means claim to be the last word but I, I just want to point out again that throwing the word sexual in there, like I don't think that uh, thinking of it in that way is the most life-giving way for a gay person who's committed to a traditional sexual ethic. Would gender be so, better? 
I'm sorry? Would gender be better, you think? Gender orientation? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's possible. It's, it's a different... I mean, it's more broad and broadly descriptive. Word. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean... Yeah, I just, I, so I think of, in, in my book, I talk about... I have a chapter on, on intimacy. What does intimacy and relationships look like for people who aren't straight? And... Uh, I just the way I, I talk about it is by looking at just what are different kinds of intimacy. What is what is uh, emotional intimacy? What is uh, physical intimacy? Of course, what is uh, what I call units of intimacy? And are, are there different kinds of units of intimacy? And I I think this is relevant to, to your question. I, I do think there are two different kinds of, of unitive intimacy. There's physical units of intimacy, which is obviously sexual intercourse, but I think we have to do justice to, you know, a very common text for the, the uh, revisionists, the, the progressives, the Christians, um, and that's the David and Jonathan example. Jonathan makes some very uh, profound statements of union with David. He says our heart, that his heart was uni- united, or his, uh, his soul is united with the soul of David. And I, I don't obviously think that means that they were secretly gay lovers. Um, do you but think I they do were gay? That a very profound, not merging, but mingling, I think, of souls uh, that is being described there. That happens when any two people who are drawn to each other in friendship um, really begin to think of, of the other before themselves. And I, I, I don't think that there's any problem with calling that a form of units of intimacy. And then, then so the question is, well, is that open to gay people? Is that open to gay people who experience desire for intimacy with someone they happen to be attracted to? Again, not sexually attracted to. Uh, if they are, that's a temptation to be resisted. And uh, if it becomes lust, then it needs to be mortified. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, th- th- these are questions of, about deeply human things, meaningful things to people. And we have to. I think we need that. We haven't done justice thinking about them critically. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a non-straight person's experience, right? What does sanctification look like for a non-straight person who's trying to find relationships where they can be themselves and be loved and and be cherished and and even to come first for somebody where you're so close to one or two other people that that uh, that again that you could use the same language of, of David and Jonathan to describe that relationship. Well, but David and Jonathan weren't gay. You're not saying that, right? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. But so. They use the same language. So, what you're describing is like a deep friendship. And the question is can can a man who is aesthetically oriented towards men find that kind of deep friendship with another man? Yep. Absolutely. But I mean, when when Adam was alone, in the garden, God made Eve. So it seems like the intimacy that you're talking about, uh, we should have that. You you gave the example of, of David and obviously those kinds of friendships I think we do find in the church. And yeah. I get that there's another layer when you're same-sex right. attracted. But when we're talking yeah. about real intimacy and life sharing, I mean, the original design obviously was that God made Eve, Correct when Adam was alone? Well, it's, again, when you talk about life sharing and intimacy, um, 
I, I'm a, what I encounter a lot and what I, I, I think I might be hearing you say or suggest is that because God gave Eve to Adam to, to, uh, to be his helper, which I believe we often think of the secretary helper. I think <laughs> Not being, us. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Don't worry about us. We don't think that. Yeah. It's more of a rescuer, I believe. Um, based on the Hebrew word helper, and it always applies to God coming to rescue an inferior party. And anyway, um, so, but again, the context of, of Genesis 1 and 2, I think of as uh, God giving a blueprint of sorts for what family looks like, I would say, uh, the base unit, so to speak. And, yeah. and in that case, uh, how specifically procreation happens, because uh, procreation is necessary for families to multiply and, and, and populate and all that. Right. Be fruitful but and I multiply. I that categorically excludes uh, other uh, gracious provisions of relationship and intimate relationship, I would say, um, that, uh, are, that are meaningful to people. And uh, so it, it almost sounds like that for anybody to experience the kind of intimacy that God designed us to have, they have to get married and have sex. No, we we would disagree with that. Yeah. uh, Yeah. But that uh, that feels a little consistent, a little, that feels somewhat consistent with the question you asked. I think that um, we are attempting to make a distinction between a very close friendship and a married couple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's helpful. So in, 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 in my book, I have a chapter on, so what are the options? Like, what are the options for, <laughs> for non-straight people who are trying to, to make it uh, in their Christian life? And specifically, what are their options for family, right? Um, one of the main uh, sorrows that gay teenagers in the church experience um, is the lack of hope that they have for a family. So uh, there's God never promises anybody a family, and at least straight teenagers can anticipate the possibility, the likelihood even, just given statistics, of finding the right person, eventually settling down and, and doing life with somebody for the rest of their lives. Like, straight teenagers can experience that, but gay teenagers can't. They don't see that possibility in their experience. And so they have a, a, a different burden of, well, where am I going to find family? Where am I going to belong? And so, you know, the, the, the traditional answer uh well, there's two default answers. One is just try and get married to an opposite-sex person and hope it fixes you, or you can at least fake it, right? Uh, you don't even have to tell anybody. And I think the, uh, that obviously is not work, doesn't work. It's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, another default answer is just stay single the rest of your life, like in the sense of like live alone and um, and and and. Yeah, be single. And, you know, for some people, that's okay. Uh, but it's not a solution for every single non-straight gay person. Well, gay and person. I can, I, I mean, uh, what the situation that you're describing is something that I can relate to in some kind of way. Um, and mm-hmm. I will absolutely acknowledge the deep pain that comes with the thought of I will not have a family in the traditional, obviously you have to look elsewhere to find family. And that's where we, um, you know, uh, re 
training. That's not the word I want to use, but that's what I can think of. (laughs) Um, Just, or rather I should say, breaking down some of the traditions that the church has embraced about... Reparative. The next right, family. right. Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, yeah, so they, the idea is... So I think, I think family is one of the central, if not the central understanding of the, the body of Christ and what it means to be a Christian. And to be a Christian means to be part of a family, of God's family. Mm. And so um, like, if, like, that, that's very meaningful. To, to, to find your identity in, in the fact that you belong with God and what it took for that to happen and what you have to believe and, 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 and do to live out that identity as a, a child of God in a family. So anyway, all that means is to say that, that I rethinking what does family mean, the idea of family for, for gay people, I think really opens up a lot of doors. So I have a, a good friend, um, his name's Nick. And uh, he's a worship pastor at his church, and one of his best friends is the pastor of his church. And um, Nick is gay; he's celibate, committed to, to singleness. And whenever I see his friend, I'm friends with both of them on Facebook. Whenever I see his friend post anything related to his family, whether it's a picture of his kids or what they did as a family, or whatever, he always tags four people. He tags his wife, he tags his parents, and he tags Nick. Nick goes with them on family vacations. Nick goes over to their house for dinner all the time. Nick watches movies with their kids, like all scrunched up on the couch together. And Nick belongs there. And so the idea of extended kinship and opening up your home uh, on a very deep personal basis to someone who you know is not straight, mm. right? And, right? And has no prospect of having a quote, nuclear family of their own. Right. But uh, why can't still, they? We need... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I'm just rambling. <laughs> Good. Then you're you're in with the right crowd. Here's a question I have. Why why can't we're using the word can't? And so if it if the I and now listen, I don't believe in reparative therapy. I think reparative therapy is a mess. Sure. I don't think um, that it's gay to straight. I think it's lost to saved. Um, and so let mm-hmm. me just be very clear about that. Like I believe yeah, that. Yeah. Um, why? If so, celibacy is a gift. It's not something that everybody has. It's talked of as a gift. Um, we all know, you know, Paul talking about that, and I think that um, we know from the creation order that marriage is a, a very good thing. None of us hate marriage. So yeah. my question is, why can't we? We're kind of using these terms like they have no hope. They have no hope for a family. But why yeah. would we? Why would we have such a hopeless outlook on that, given that we do believe that um, the that lust is a sin, that sin should be mortified? Why wouldn't we, why would we advocate that these people who are struggling in this way should reject marriage? You know, we're saying, oh, it just couldn't fulfill you. The same, you know, um, so go find this other thing, this kind of, special celibate friendship, you know, um, that might fulfill you more. Why would we push towards that when that's not the created order? Now, again, I'm not asking why can't, you know, I'm yeah. not asking about reparative therapy. Um, yeah. but I'm just thinking about, um, I'm a big fan of John Calvin. I hope that doesn't scare you away. Um, no. <laughs> but, um, I don't believe, I also completely disagree with, I disagree with the world's definition of, 
kind of the exaggerated, you know, oh, this is what a gay man is like. He's this and he's that and he's a flower. And yeah. I think that's wrong and I reject that. But I am wondering if if we're pushing for this, how are we not pushing for a form of effeminacy over something that is God ordained? You know, so if 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 we're pushing that you withdraw from something that we know is good because this good thing can't fulfill you. And I think that's what a feminacy is, is when you withdraw on, uh, from something good because it's not going to fulfill you the way you want. How is this not similar? Yeah, so very good question. Um, so I would, there's something you said in the very middle, but I would want to make sure that I make clear that I don't believe or agree with. Okay. I would not say to a gay man or a gay woman who uh, was coming to terms with their sexuality and wondering about marriage, I would never tell them, don't pursue opposite sex marriage because it won't fulfill you. Like, what would that say about my wife? <laughs> right. I mean, right. I'm right. a gay man who's married to a woman and has been for 14 years and it's very fulfilling. Um, so, again, the, 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 the complication here is that marriage has been projected onto gay experience, onto experience in churches as the expectation. Like, you have to achieve marriage, otherwise you're not whole, or you're not... I mean, the single people experience the same thing, single straight people. Like, you're an inferior person unless you're married. So, I'm not saying, I would never tell a gay person, don't get married. <laughs> the problem is, well, there's two problems. Historically, the church has done that. Christians have done that. Uh, implicitly through our culture, through the church culture, cultural Christianity. And so it creates this expectation that gay people just feel like they just can't even measure up. They, the, the cards, are, the decks are stacked against them. And mm -hmm. so it feels overwhelming. It feels shaming. Um, and so to start with the idea of really pushing hard, you should be open to marriage. That's the created order. Maybe ideally, but we never work with people like purely based on ideals. We work with them where they are. And where most gay people are is they, they just think that being with a woman or an opposite sex person is gross, like intimately, sexually in that way. Like if they were to think about that, it's the same way that if you'd ask a straight person, what, you know, don't imagine it right now because that would be simple. But if you were to, <laughs> like you would have this recoil, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what most of the time, what happens most of the time with, uh, people like me uh, who are in uh, satisfying and relationally and intimately fulfilling marriages is we develop an interest in one specific person. Um, there's a, a feminist scholar named Lisa Diamond. She has a lot of work on the idea of sexual fluidity. Now, I am not advocating people to go explore their sexual fluidity. <laughs> right. Um, I think Good. for every single <laughs> Christian, like there's no reason to explore any kind of sexual fluidity at all. Um, but for those people who experience their sexuality in different ways, in ways that are not mainstream, I would say, um, if you, like for me, non-straight people, we experience our sexuality uh, in different ways because of our orientation being different. And so for me and a lot of people who are non-straight and find themselves uh, open to the idea of marriage, and for me, I, I, I was very open. Uh, I um, saw myself with a wife and kids, and, and that's just how I thought of my life. And, um, and so I met my wife in college and came out to her about uh, two months after we started dating. We had spent 
become really close friends by that point. And the way the story happens for most people is that you have this emerging of uh, a budding sexuality, so to speak, that's directed towards one person. Um, and obviously you don't want to entertain sexual desire for somebody who's not your spouse, but you fight those temptations when they come. And for most gay people who end up uh, pursuing an opposite sex relationship and it working and it being a natural thing for them, that's what ends up happening. You have this deepening of, of relationships so that as my wife and I became, got to know each other more, got to know each other's hopes and dreams more, got to understand each other's emotions more and what impacted us personally in life. Like there's this emotional attraction that began to develop in me towards my wife. And that led to spiritual attraction where I would, I would want to, to understand her soul and her relationship with Christ and, in ways that we could uh, spur each other on as brother and sister in Christ. And then as we uh, got even closer, physical attraction developed. But again, I have n- never experienced physical attraction towards anyone besides my wife. And I couldn't even fathom what that would be like. Mm. Um, and so, but again, that's, so that's, that's what typically happens mm. when a couple where one of the partners, one of the spouses is not straight. But again, I don't want to push that, on someone who is not does not want that like a lot of gay people just don't want to pursue marriage mm. and so if, if they don't want to um for whatever reason i don't feel like it's my job to to correct that sure um and so if that's the case and if perhaps in our culture right now the majority aren't because of our cultural christian customs and cultural the, the culture of evangelicalism that that uh I, you know, we've already talked about the nuclear family as the be all end all. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe it's, it's, it's kind um, to constantly remind people, you need to be open to marriage. You need to be open to marriage. It's, it's the, the created order. Um, I think there's, there's unique aspects of non-straight experience that make that a, a, a burden mm. uh, that is not placed on them by the Bible. Okay. I am. I have one more question. Joy, you have one more question. I do. Yeah. I've taken so much of your time. Thank you for being <laughs> yeah. so patient. Um, no worries. Okay. Fun. Good. I have one. Okay. So, <clears throat> I I told I understand that you uh, um, and I think Wesley Hill, if I'm correct, um, or maybe just the conference in general, are making a distinct mm-hmm. a, a distinction between. Uh, you're you're saying that attraction doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, is that right? That's what I'm saying. Um, I, I I wrote a book on it. I've studied a lot on it. That's not what I'm saying. Everybody at the conference is saying. Okay. Well, I, so, I don't, sorry. Go the ahead. The point of the conference is just to gather a broad group of people that all can resonate with it, where we talk about our experience to some extent, and 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 that, that feel like we don't have a um, a voice in contemporary evangelicalism, I guess. Okay. And so we need, we need, we need, we need support. We need encouragement. Yeah. And there's plenty of people who agree and they're all showing up in St. Louis. <laughs> right. So <laughs> I guess essentially I'm wondering about the, the argument that the, the mind body argument, I mean, for, for a person to be attracted to the same sex, and I know this isn't the case that you're making, but you're you are more a part of that community than me, so maybe you can help me out. 
For a person to be attracted to the same sex is to essentially say that their soul desires don't line up with their physical body. And in order for something in your soul to desire the opposite of the purpose and structure of your body, I mean, wouldn't we have to embrace at that point a mind-body dualism? And wouldn't the, what concerns me about embracing that mind-body dualism is that that is the same logic that's used to support, you know, for example, transgenderism. And mm-hmm. wouldn't that be a problem for, for someone with a biblical worldview? Well, the way you described it, I would say that that would might be a problem. But I, I, I haven't studied and gone into the philosophical implications of mind-body dualism and all that. I, I, in fact, I, I struggled to follow your if and this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, sorry. I can to be, I can to try to re- I can try to rephrase it. I guess um, Nancy Piercy made the argument in Love Thy Body that mm-hmm. part of the issue. Um, part of what we have to orientation, um, for attraction. And I think that that could mean, I think that could mean a lot of things, but that essentially transgenderism is, you know, a denial that the body that you're in, um, Mm -hmm. is the body that you're supposed to have, you know, a lot of it's, it's a, this isn't my body and you have the documentary, I'm not my body. And that's kind of the the line of the the transgender movement and so there is a mind body dualism there of saying my mind and my body are two separate things um and i'm wondering if you're same-sex attracted then you're essentially saying that my mind is attracted to what my physical body was not designed for how are those different are they different um i i would It'd be, it'd be helpful if I knew Kirstie's argument because, again, if our soul, if we were created to have sex, um, if being human meant that you had to have sex, then I think that would be the case. But I, I think the new creation says the opposite, that you know, being truly human in the new heavens and the new earth, we will not have sex. Like, there's no marriage. No, and but so, for sure our bodies are designed with a certain purpose. Yeah, well, but then yeah, Aristotle has his four types of purposes, and we have to define what is purpose. And, like, I, I, I just, I'm not ready to say, willing to say, that, that because of the physical bodies that we have, that that implies that to be that they have to be implemented in every in the way that sex and procreation entail to be fully human. Oh no, yeah, like, we yeah. would agree that you do not have to be fully util- like my body could run fifty <laughs> miles, but I'm yeah. not gonna do that <laughs> to be the most human I can possibly be. Right. Um, yeah. But so so if I don't have sexual desire for if. if well, so here's the, here's another problem. Like, I'm not arguing. I'm not. I'm not. I think a lot of uh, evangelicals end up suggesting that indiscriminate heterosexual desire is actually good. 
Oh and no, that's I don't think it that's is. wrong. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. bad so, bad argument. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's just make this right clear. The biblical norm is uni heterosexuality, where you're sexually attracted to one person, and that's your spouse. So, but I don't think that I don't think that telling a gay person who has experienced the grace of the gospel and has changed and brought into God's family that their desires for intimacy for uh, someone that they're attracted to who happens to be the same sex, um, that that is going against their body, I guess. Well, if it's... Because it's not sexual. It's the personal beauty. It's the beauty of the other person that God made them to be. Well, I, like, I guess that's just a new category because I've just never heard of... Oh, I agree. ...of homosexuality not having... I mean, we're obviously we're discussing sexual ethics, so there's something sexual yeah. happening. Well, we're, right. <laughs> we're discussing sexual ethics. We're discussing anthropology. Like, yeah. what does it mean to be... Like, and I, I completely, like... I, and again, I might be wrong, <laughs> uh, but I wrote a book, and I expect people to read it if they want to talk about this. You're right. I yeah. expect people to... To wrestle with the ideas yeah. because there are there are ideas that are that are resonating with people like me. Right. Uh, I talk to. I mean, it's just and whether they resonate because they're right or they resonate because they're different and make them think differently mm-hmm. um, and perhaps more fruitfully about the way they experience uh, their orientation. I mean, these are all things that need to play out. I, I think that need to actually we need to have space for uh, in, in our churches to think through because. You can't just say tell someone don't have gay sex. Like that's not enough. No, it's not. And that's, I, what, I and agree. that's what we've that's what we've resorted to throughout our history. Right. And so No, it's for sure not not enough at all. I agree with yeah, you there. Yeah. Well you have another question, Joy? And then we'll let you go. You've been so patient. Thank you. Yeah. Um I oh, did no I did have a question, but I think it's gonna just kind of circle back to a lot of things. Okay. So I'm just going to ask you a fun question. Oh, a fun question. Okay. Um, oh, cool. Describe for us uh, <laughs> the most perfect sandwich you could ever possibly eat. We always try to ask our guests one fun question. And so this is the moment. Sandwich? of Yes. Sandwich. Yes. <laughs> sandwich. So it could be like a specific sandwich, like a Chick-fil-A sandwich with the stuff on it. Oh, or it could, you can build it for us. Oh, man. Man, well, so I'm, I'm on the keto diet. My wife and I do the keto hey, diet. Hey, me so too. We, we, what's that? Me too. You go, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I like fathead bread, which is, you know, basically made out of almond meal and, and mozzarella cheese baked in the oven. Yeah. Um, but I love I love uh, spicy chicken sandwiches from Chick-fil-A. But it, it would probably have to have bacon on it. I, I, anything okay. with bacon is, is, is worth eating. <laughs> I, I'm totally with you. <laughs> That's, that's the awesome. best thing about the keto diet. You can eat all the bacon you want. I Love know. It. <laughs> it's wonderful. I eat so much beef jerky and cheese. It's not even real. Uh, yes. Salami. <laughs> oh, all right, Nate. Well, seriously, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I just, you've been very, so patient. Enjoyed it. We took a whole hour of your life and <laughs> we appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> oh, you guys are great. <laughs> thank you. Fun, yeah. Hey, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well, that was, I enjoyed myself. <laughs> yeah. Nate's um, really nice. Yes. He's very nice. Um, I think I have 
I had obviously I had another question at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to just read the conversation, so we just went with the fun question. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I have uh, my own. I would have more to say, and I would have my own critique on the conversation. Um, but we just had him on, so there's really no point in like I'm content. I think we're yeah. both content in. Yes. Just having the interview sit. Um, I need to process it a little bit, and I right. I just think it would be like we're obviously not going to do like oh here's what we thought about this right you no. know we just I had a conversation yeah. with someone who was very open and honest and willing to come on our show and take his time out of his day to do that yeah and there's definitely more to say and I'm glad that um this conversation is happening obviously we disagree with a lot of what is happening at the revoice conference but I think um as we're starting to learn I think we need to get better at wanting to have tough conversations and try to push the ball down the field you know um like he was talking about you know wanting to further the conversation like push it along let's move it um and so I think that that is a good stance to have let's push it along let's move it and so I'm just really glad that he came on the show and agreed to state his position and when I think it gave um I mean, nothing's neutral, but it did provide sort of a foundation for what is happening in this area of Christians right now. Um, And our commentary on it, who knows, we could do, we can do an episode on it if we wanted. Uh, I think it's safe to say we'd have more thoughts on it outside of the interview, but we're not interested in. Mm-hmm. him hanging up and then us immediately <laughs> right like, oh well this is yeah <laughs> right. uh, you know that's not cool yeah so anyway yeah we hope you guys enjoyed the conversation um i hope that we can continue to have these difficult conversations be open and honest about where we're coming at use scripture as our foundation um i think that you know when we had rosaria on she talked about how essentially the god the gospel's on a collision course with these issues and we have to be prepared to think through them to a next level. Like it's not enough. And, and Nate said this, like, it's not enough to just say, well, gay sex isn't okay. Like, well, okay. We right. know, we know that we agree on that. That's not okay. Um, but what next, right. what, what do we do now? How do we move forward? What does right. that mean? Um, I don't know that we would agree with it us and Nate would have the same answer as to how we move forward completely. But um, this is something that we really need to not be shying away from. And we need to, um, it's so important if we're going to love our neighbor. Right. Well, there are people I do know mm -hmm. for a fact that there are people that they feel like they can't share that part of their testimony because people will fear that there's some sort of attraction when really all right someone is looking for is just to be friendly and love neighbor yeah um and i do think that um the church at large has sort of attached on to um so we we would say that uh homosexuality is a sin and then the world of course says it's an identity and i think that we i think that we meaning the church at large does view it as an identity more than we realize we do. Yes. And then that influences our behavior towards people that come out of this background. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that's all I have. Yeah, me too. Uh, 
we have some Patreon only content up. We are going to have some more up soon. So if mm-hmm. you want to hear more interviews like this one or maybe like different ones, because we have a lot of different kinds of people on. Right. Hey, by the way, let me ask you this. Um, somebody asked me yesterday, like, what's your podcast about? And then somebody asked again today, what's your podcast about? And I never know what to say. Is that weird? Uh, no, I don't think it's weird. Okay. But I do have an answer. What's your answer? And the reason I have an answer is because someone didn't like ask me off the cuff. Okay. So <laughs> I think that's a part of why okay. sometimes we don't have an answer. Because yeah. we're like, um, uh, uh... everything. <laughs> I When we first were conceptualizing sheologians uh-huh. and we were talking about even just things like branding and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think for me, a determination that I made is that I wanted to be able to take issues that we complicate uh-huh. and make them simpler and like put them into a format that is uh, just more, more straightforward. Okay. Like I think that we, like with all of our philosophical musings and just living every day as humans, we come up with a lot of stuff that complicates pretty simple doctrine that comes from now the doctrine of its in and of itself may not be simple but the command is simple right right so i think that's the approach that i try to take when we do mm-hmm. um the show and okay. so maybe that's my answer yeah that's to a, that that's but. a way better answer than what i say <laughs> if you're ever around and someone asks that i'm just gonna shut up and let you take it <laughs> well and another what i've learned another reason why we do the show and what it's about is just, I think it's, I didn't realize this when we first started Sheologians, but I think now I know that there is a definite communal aspect about this. For us, it's just two people sitting and, yeah, you know, doing out with each other. We're talking about what we would be talking about even if the microphones right. weren't here. Which doesn't seem like a huge community, but what we've realized is that, um, it's important for people to, uh, even if it's re- remotely, to like sit with other people. Yeah. And so I do think it's that is something that I try to do when we do record Sheila Legends is re- do it in a way that makes people feel like they're sitting in on the conversation with us. And right. Right. Hanging out. Right. I hope we do that. So I think that's also what our show is about. Right. Okay. Well, anyway. now you guys know what our show's about. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> If you want to support the show and keep us on the airwaves, go to patreon.com slash sheologians. Six bucks a month gets you access to our Patreon-only content, which um, I think we're... Should we do... I'm not going to... We'll plan this off the air. We're going to do another thing. We're going to do a thing. There we go. A thing in the place, and it'll be on Patreon. And we will see you guys next week. Yeah. Yeah.